Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome to Book Off, a literary podcast with a difference. Yes, this is the podcast that puts two guests head to head in a war of the words, pitching a book they love against one another. And we'll be getting to that a bit later on. So let's meet the two warriors joining me today, ready to commence the literary battle. My first guest decided to be a writer at the age of 10 and since sending her first story to a magazine has written 35 novels and sold just a mere 88 million of them around the world. It's Barbara Taylor Bradford. Hello. Hello, Joe. Lovely to see you. And my second guest is an international best-selling crime fiction writer. Her novels have been translated into 34 languages and published in 51 countries. Sophie Hanna, hello. Hi. Lovely to see you both here. Great to be Already here. Already talking about our ailments and just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just how, how we're doing, but I think you both look absolutely fabulous. You've just published your latest novel, Barbara, Master of His Fate, and this is a new family saga from you set in the 19th century. Can you... Tell us a little bit about James Falconer. Yes, James Falconer is the protagonist in a, in the whole series. Um, it's really about a story of a man's life from the age of 14 to maybe 50. I'm not sure mm. where that last book will end, what age it will, he will be. Um, and he's, it's about a barrow boy. Um, his father has two stalls in a market, uh, which I invented in Camden Town because I wanted a certain kind of market with a roof. And so I had to invent one. And he has dreams of glory. He, at the age of 14, knows that he can't stay on the stalls. And so he sets out with great determination, drive, ambition, and all of the things you need and talent to become a merchant prince. He wants his own Burlington Arcade and his own Fortnum and Masons. And basically, it's his journey. It's his entire life, the women in his life, the children in his life, the bad things that happen to him and the good. Wow. Uh, and Sophie, your your latest book is a new Poirot novel, uh, The Mystery of Three Quarters, brilliant title. And by no means your first time of writing Agatha Christie, is it? Yes, it's a Poirot novel, um, and The Mystery of Three Quarters is my third Poirot novel. Uh, the first one, The Monogram Murders, was published in 2014, and then the second one, 
was published in 2016 and that was called Closed Casket. So, uh, yeah, just written the third in in my series of Poirot novels. In your series. And I think Agatha wrote 36 <gasps> Poirot novels. So, uh, Poirot's, you know, bus- a busy a busy chap. <laughs> yeah, busy. <laughs> I think writing a four, four book series is <laughs> when she wrote 36. 36 with Poirot in, and then obviously lots more with Miss Marple, Standalones, Tommy and Tuppence. She and was incredibly prolific. There is a play, The Mousetrap, and it's been running about 50 years, hasn't it? It's longer, I think, 65 years. I mean, this is something that is not stressed nearly often enough about Agatha Christie. She is by far the UK's most successful female playwright. I mean, at one time she had three separate uh, plays on at the West End really? at the same right? time, and the Mousetrap. I'm I'm almost certain it's certainly gone over sixty years. I'm pretty sure it's been running for more than sixty five years uninterrupted. Wow. Well, it's definitely the longest running it is. play in the West. Does it mean how you... many hours a day do you think she wrote? I think, I mean, I don't know how many hours she wrote, but her books were very short. I mean, books in general were a bit shorter then than they are now. Oh, so um, what, what was the typical book? Well, I mean, some of Agatha Christie's novels were maybe forty to 50,000 words long, which, I mean, now that would almost be regarded as a novella. Novella, probably. You know, yeah. the yeah. standard novel length that editors, well, that I've heard that editors ideally like is sort of 100,000 words, maybe. So. Well... I've written four novellas which are about 150 pages manuscript. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, that size. Yeah, mm. yeah. So it's not a 150-page book because you lose a third. Three pages of typescript yes, exactly. go on to one page of book. Yeah. But um, th- that takes me about three months, mm. Mm. working yeah. every day. Yeah. Even, even a little book takes work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Agatha Christie, actually, because she had sort of no pretensions about her writing I actually think she is a great literary genius but she didn't she (laughs) thought she was writing entertaining puzzle mysteries for fans of that genre so she wouldn't have sort of said I need a whole year to work on and draft my books and then rewrite them because she would have felt that that was taking them you know treating them as though they were great works of art and she is on record as saying that she didn't think of them in that way at all which I think is kind of interesting and endearing but when I read them I can see there's so much there Mm. above and beyond the plot and the mystery I mean I do think she is a great writer and I think if anyone you know really looked at the evidence and read her seriously there's so much sort of wit and insight and cleverness and uh, beautiful elegant writing didn't she once run away or get lost or she she ended up in Harrogate Harrogate, which is why the the (laughs) UK's biggest crime writing festival is now in Harrogate. Oh, really? That's why Harrogate. So I always say it's not a great place for crime writers to disappear to now if they want to run away. (laughs) It's literally full of every crime writer in the world. Don't go in July because (laughs) they will find you. (laughs) No, go to Howarth, the Yorkshire (laughs) Moors. Have you read all 36? Of course. I mean, more than once. I've read everything Agatha Christie has ever published. And I've read all her novels, I would say, at least three times each. Gosh. Because the great thing about someone who's written that many books is once you, if you think, right, I'm going to do a reread of all of them, by the time you get to reread the last one, you've forgotten the one you first reread and you can start (laughs) all over again. And I mean, I read them when I'm in those moods where nothing but Agatha Christie 
will do. Mm. She's my sort of go-to comfort read, which isn't to say that her books are not challenging, because they absolutely are. They're they're really sort of intellectually puzzling and stimulating. But, you know, there are moods I'm in, you know, if I'm really stressed or slightly ill or haven't slept very well. And any other book would make me think, oh, too much, too hard, too much effort. I always feel like reading an Agatha Christie, whatever mood I'm in. And and what a what a marvelous legacy she's left for her family too, with all that money pouring in. I suppose still. Well, and the great thing about Agatha Christie is that her influence on crime writers. You know, I can read new crime novels being published by new writers now, and I can see you know Agatha Christie's influence there, there, there. So it's like she's. She, she did so much to expand what the genre could do mm. and contain. So this year, for example, there's been an amazingly successful debut crime novel by a chap called Stuart Turton. And the book is called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Uh, and it's brilliantly original and it's certainly the best crime novel I've read for quite a while. And you can absolutely see Agatha Christie's influence. Mm. It, it, you know, And as soon as I read it... I said, this is a Christie fan. And, and then when I met him, he was like, yes, I'm a massive Christie fan. And Agatha was a huge influence. And you see it in so many of the new up-and-coming crime writers. So, you know, it's it's kind of crazy to think that someone who published her first novel in 1920-whatever and her last novel in 1976 is yeah. still probably the most influential force in crime writing. It's amazing, really. And isn't, isn't it? it funny? You don't read much about that. I mean, they're always saying this one and that one's the greatest mm. writer with so many books and whatever. Mm. And yet, it's not true. And actually, she's the one. She, she, a- she absolutely tr- <laughs> she's she's the one. She's absolutely right. Oh, she, she is I think the I'm one. Gonna, you in an interview. <laughs> is, is there a author like Sophie Barbara that you have read all of the back catalogue of that, that is one of your favourites? Um, well, I loved the novels of Ruth Rendell. Mm. Is it too. Rendell or Rendell? Rendell. Rendell. And she's my second favourite after I And she Christie. wrote under another name. Barbara like, Vine. Barbara Vine. That's I've right. re- I read yes. her a lot, but I can't say that I've done what Sophie's done. Um, but there are a lot of writers. I, I love um, historical fiction. Not mm. f- I like historical fiction, but I, I love historical biographies. And my favourite is Andrew Roberts because he puts. He's got a skeleton called Napoleon Bonaparte, but he makes him. He puts flesh on him. And I'm currently reading that new book of his called Churchill. Walking with Destiny, and um, it's been called the the greatest single volume book ever written about Winston Churchill. So I've read a lot of uh, well, I've read most of Andrew's books, but he hasn't written 170 (laughs) biographies. I do like crime, and I'm going to start reading you. And you know, (laughs) it begins today. today, I'll send you a book. You don't have to. I'm going to go and buy it. We should support each other that way. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't know if you've read, either of you have read, a man called Daniel Silver. Not silver like this, but VA. I haven't. I've heard good things about him, but I've, I've never read I've read all him. his books. And he he writes, actually, about a man called Gabriel Allon, who is a restorer of great art or ceilings in the Sistine Chapel and that kind of thing. Mm. But when Israel needs him, because he's an Israeli, he is there to be their spy hunter because he's really a spy. 
an assassin, if you like. And the books are marvellous. They're thrilling. And uh, you're on the edge like this waiting to see. Well, you know he's got to live, even yeah. when he's in danger, because then if he dies, the series over. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes that doesn't matter, though, does it? When you, Even though you know there's other books in a series and you're reading the first or second, you're still, you're still thinking, oh, no, this is, this is you know the end of him. If it, if it's written well, same with films yeah, for me. Even though I know there's another one, yeah. a sequel, it's <laughs> I still get caught up in that thought that actually they might not make it. Yeah, well, if the suspense is done properly, then you still have that fear. But if there's another season or another volume, I, I do sort of like quickly look on Wikipedia <laughs> just to check that the character I like survives. <laughs> <laughs> That's naughty. It's like looking at the last page of yeah, the Yeah, well, book. I would never do that. I would never look at the last page. But I have this sort of weird view that authors have a kind of unwritten contract with the reader that there are most of the characters especially in a crime novel are fair game and might get murdered but you enter a book thinking that there should be at least some characters that we can expect to survive yes Um, like you know the the people we most identify with like the protagonists and you know the people we're rooting for the detectives so um if they look likely to die then i always think hmm I'm going to check there in the next one because this is the character that I am invested in. Well, you know, it was the late Graham Greene who said, when asked what he thought of every morning when he sat down at his desk, when he sat down, what's the first thing, asked the reporter, that you think? And he said, I remind myself that character is plot. And the moment I read that, I was struggling. I'd struggled through five books I never finished, and I was starting A Woman of Substance. And I thought, oh, what he means is character is destiny. Who you are as a person will tell the story of your life. Mm. And I knew who Emma Hart was, and I knew how to write the novel, just with that one line. Because who I am and who you are our own characters, not to get it mixed with a character in a book, your own character leads you down a certain path. Mm. And I knew what to do. Mm. I just knew, oh, and my books are very character-driven. But it's so true, isn't it? Because to say character is plot, I think encapsulates a, a fundamental truth that lots of people don't know is there which is you can't extricate the two and so often people will say what is more important to you plot or character as though it's a choice it's the same thing and well you can't imagine so I always start each of my books with an intriguing mysterious scenario that involves both a character and something really strange happening so the beginning of the mystery of three quarters my latest Poirot novel Four completely separate people have each received a letter purportedly from Poirot, signed in Poirot's name, accusing them each of the same murder. Oh, that's clever. And one by one they turn up and say to Poirot, how dare you send me this letter accusing me of the murder of Barnabas Pandy? I've never even heard of him. I haven't killed him. Now, Poirot didn't send the letters and he's never heard of Barnabas Pandy either, so he doesn't know if he's real, dead, alive, and feels he has he feels he has to investigate. But I have to that, read that first. That, <laughs> but that idea, which was the first sort of spark of inspiration for the mystery of three quarters, that idea came with all the characters and that weird, intriguing plot hook. Mm. And they weren't separate. I couldn't it wasn't like I love this character or I love the idea of these letters. It was all mixed up together. So I think I think Barbara's absolutely right that, you know, if you're trying to write anything, 
seeing character and plot as inextricable from one another is a is a good first step. Yes. <laughs> is there a, a literary figure that you'd like to write, Barbara, that you, you'd like to tackle? Someone from a you know, a previous novel or from the screen that you think, oh, I'd love to just get into their head and write as them for a bit? No, <laughs> not not at this moment in time, no, because <laughs> I'm thinking about this series I'm writing, but I might one day. Yeah, I maybe. You never know. You never know which one will come up. I remember talking to Anthony Horowitz, the author who's... Um, done some continuation James Bond novels. Mm. And in. he's done some Sherlock Holmes. And he's done some Sherlock yeah. Holmes, of course, yes. And the time I was talking to him, it was specifically about a new Bond. Mm. But he said he he has, when he's writing, you know, um, the Ian Fleming character, he actually has a letter from Ian Fleming that he that he bought, and he puts it out on the desk, and yeah. that sort of sets him in the in the mind yeah. um, a bit. Is there any anything that you do either of you when you sit down to write a book are there any of those little quirks that you have to have before you can sort of get on with your novel or are you just like nah I'll just write it wherever well I can write anywhere if I have to having been a journalist but I much prefer to be in the room I write in in our home in New York when we we just bought this apartment a few years ago and it had it did have a library so there I had shelves and that I made my writing room but I really I write at home and I'm sure you do mm. yes I, I do when I can yes uh, but like mm. you I can write anywhere um, and I often have to I often have to write on planes on trains in hotels exactly so I, I'm happiest there because I've got Something I have since I'm now writing a lot of historical family sagas, I really need the books, yes. And I'm not very technical about googling and all of that. <laughs> I need a four year old to come and help me, you know. To <laughs> yeah. all this stuff. So I have all my books, I have a full library, and um, I'm comfortable there. And I love going into that room, it's very quiet. I need quiet, mm. and I sit down at my IBM we'll write number two typewriter <laughs> do you ah. I put the paper in and off I go because wow. I still I've written all my novels and novellas and everything I write on typewriters I do I do research on a computer you know on yeah. a plate hmm. tablet whatever you want to call it but I'm afraid hmm. of losing the book down a tube. Yeah. And yes. a Do you have a, an electric typewriter? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's electric. An electric one. Yeah. It's uh, not even that ball anymore. You know, you clip two pieces of tape, two tapes, mm -hmm. clip together, and you just slip it in, and it there's correcting tape that you just go back and yeah. if you've made a mistake. And uh, I love writing it that way. Mm. I then edit it because I like editing on paper. And then I send that when I finish a chapter with my pen edits, I send it to a typist by fax, and she types it and sends it back. And she's put it on a disc, which is what publishers want a disc, please. <laughs> um, and she sends me back the finished chapter, and I edit that again, or maybe some mistakes that I correct, and just send the pages that I've put more ink on, and that it, back it comes. And I send her every chapter when I've finished it. And at the end of the book, when I'm writing my last chapter, she's typing the last book one. So that That's I right. act, she's yeah. not, she gets it chapter by chapter. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That yeah. way, I've got and do it. You, do you, when you're, when you're in writing mode, do you write the same sort of hours each day and do you write a certain number of hours per day or does it vary? No. When I'm writing a novel, I get up about six o'clock sometimes it might be a bit earlier a bit later um the house the apartment is quiet i press the thing on the coffee pot Mm. i get a cup of coffee in my dressing gown and go in and edit what i've written the day before by then it's about quarter to eight usually so i make my husband's breakfast and i go and have something with him and then i say goodbye and i go and i put on my writing clothes which are pants and a shirt and or t-shirt and have my shower in the afternoon when i finish at four o'clock and i always finish between four and five unless i'm late with a book Mm. and then i might get up at five and stop at five. Oh, wow. I, I'm very, I've got a lot of stamina, you know, yeah. except now my doctor said, sitting is as bad as smoking. I want what? you up every hour walking. Hang on a minute. If sitting is as bad as smoking, I might as well start smoking <laughs> yes. again. Yes. I mean, I'm already, I already do a lot of sitting. So if, yes. if I could add no, smoking Apparently <laughs> sitting is very bad for you. So, what I do is, <laughs> after a couple of hours, I get up. We've a long, like a wide gallery in our apartment, so I walk up and down it a few times. Maybe make a cup of tea and then hmm. go back. But that's, People, that's very disciplined. I mean, I'm very is, disciplined. Yeah, and I'm good. also very focused. Yeah, and very. And the other good thing is that you finish at four o'clock, then you've got the whole evening. Yes. Well, I, it's sometimes five, but also I'm t- a bit tired also, yeah. and I have a rest. Yeah. But you know, the thing is. I do believe that we've got to get a bit of exercise when we're sitting like that all mm. the time. That's mm. why we both need a massage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were talking before we came on about how we have regular massages because, you know, I, I, I look at my email inbox and, yeah. you know, even if I've only been away from it for half an hour, there can be like a hundred new emails and my shoulders immediately go... Ooh! 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, oh I, then I need to have a deep tissue massage quickly. And the way you sit as a writer as well, you know, and, and like you were saying... And a chair is important And a chair is very important. Yeah, I'm, I have a, a chair on wheels. I don't know yes. about you. These and wouldn't do, would they? No, writing? no, because my desk is under the window and I write a lot in hand mm. and then I have a, an adjoining table which has a typewriter and I can just roll across. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a chair on wheels, but I don't sit in it. I have the most dysfunctional writing routine. <laughs> in fact, I won't even describe it, but one of mine, it, it's too its too depressing. I, I mean, I write in just about the worst way a person could write. Which is lying down. No, no, I, I well, well, first, well yes. first of all, I, at a certain point, I became unable to sit at anything resembling a desk on anything resembling an office chair because then I felt like I was working. Right. So I now have to sit in a really comfortable armchair with my feet up on a footstool and my laptop on a cushion oh, on my knee. Oh, all right, I see. So I do that. But then because I'm constantly trying to do admin and distracted by the dog and a, a teenager will appear and say, where are all my socks? And all of that stuff happens. And I procrastinate and get distracted by the internet. So I always start work too late, and when it comes time for me to stop and cook dinner and do sort of practical things, I haven't done what I need to do. So then, when the family all go to sleep about half ten, eleven, I have to do another three hours work. Oh no! And it's just a bonkers <gasps> way to carry on, isn't it, Bob? Well, it is. Tell we... me off. No, don't. Reinforce my New off. Year's resolution to no, be more sensible. But I, I have been known to get up at four in the morning when I'm getting late, and I'm, I get worried mm. and four thirty, and nobody knows I'm up. You know, I'm mm. there doing it, and but of course, you want to go to bed at three o'clock, and I do for a few hours. So you're getting up just as I'm going to bed. Exactly. You're two very different. <laughs> Yes. Ends of the day cycles. Yeah. Well, I, I can't even. I mean, I know a lot of writers do a lot of their writing early in the morning. Mm. I I'm just, a morning person. I, I'm yeah. not, you see, I'm a night owl. So right. if I have to work at, at you know, stupid o'clock, I'd rather it was late stupid o'clock than early <laughs> stupid I'm a morning person. When I wrote A Woman of Substance, I wrote almost all the book in hand on yellow pads, each chapter. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I was going typing and it was going well, I would go on typing and there'd be a bit missing. But I wrote the whole book in hand, really, and, and I had to get, go and have a treatment for this hand yeah, yeah. after I'd Not written this, that book. Yeah. And somebody said to me, oh, Barbara, you've got a handwritten copy of a woman of substance. I said, well, more or less, sometimes maybe the last 10 pages just flowed out and it's not on the yellow pad, why? So it was an agent actually. And he said, well, where is it? I said, I threw it away. <gasps> and oh, he said, no. you threw <laughs> a handwritten copy of a woman of and I had, you know, I'd yeah, finished yeah. the chapter, I tore it up, <laughs> I didn't want mess around. Yeah. And can you imagine yeah. what, you, you know, Leeds University is the keeper of my archive. Oh, yeah. so is mine. Oh, really? In the Brotherton well, Library? Yes, you can. Yes. Oh, 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 this is such a coincidence. My, yeah. my, my funny archive story. So when the Brotherton Library, because I lived in Yorkshire for 11 years, my husband used to work there. When they rang me, they just approached me out of the blue and said, You're, we now consider you a Yorkshire writer. You've been here long enough. Can we buy your archive unless someone has already bought it? And I said, uh, mate, I haven't got an archive. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you because I was imagining some grand thing. And he laughed and said, we want to buy it. So I said, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have anything I, even remotely resembling an archive. And he said, I bet you have. I said, no, no, I can assure you I haven't. And he said, have you got loads of old papers 
that you've scribbled on old manuscripts, what you regard as piles of junk that you've made notes. I was like, well, yeah, you mean like all the crap in the cupboard? Oh, yeah, I've got that. And they're like, right, I'd like to buy that. That is your archive. I was like, really? Are you sure? So he came around to look at it because I was like, no one could possibly want these old dog-eared manuscripts with my scrawlings on them. But apparently that's what an archive is. Yes, it is. What they get from me is that typed for... Well, I don't do... I I finish a chapter and that's it. I don't do first draft, second draft, Mm. third draft. And I send them the one that I've written on and sent to the typist. Yeah. And she's, I keep that. I don't throw it away anymore. They want the one where the writer has made a change in ink mm. or yes. red yeah. ink yes. or a green pencil with a notation at the side. So the, they get the one that looks like a mess. Yeah. That's what they yeah. want. It's a messier, they want the mess. Yes. The mess. So I send them the mess with a retype. Yeah. This is a little bit of fun at the end of the podcast where each of you have come to talk about a book, not one of your own this is a book that you love that you think everyone should read in some cases many listeners may have already read them some may not um and you're each going to have three minutes now to to pitch that book well i will i will signal you out you don't have to use it all barbara if you think if you think you can sum it up in in an earlier time that's fine too but at three minutes i'll probably Give you a little signal okay. of something. Um, I've usually got a, a horn here. To, yes, but I've let I've, I've young left man it at home. A horn. Young got, uh, uh, so I haven't brought it. Um, so I'll use this glass. I'll improvise. Okay. Um, but just before we we start the three minutes, I just want to know what books you have chosen to talk about. So Sophie, what's the book that you've brought for the book off? I have chosen a psychological thriller called Half Broken Things mm-hmm. by an author called Morag Yoss. And what about you, Barbara? Uh, I've chosen Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Fantastic. Um, Okay, who would like to go first in this situation? I'll put it over to you guys. I don't mind. Do you have? I'll go first. You'll go first? Because I'm more tired than you. I've been doing this for two weeks. I might forget if I don't do it now. So I'm going to be watching the clock for you, Barbara. But as I say, you don't need to use all three minutes. And this is telling us about Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte, and why you love it and we should all read it. So it's over to you. In 1846, a book was published in England that immediately became controversial after it had been read by the critics. They called it a fiend of a book, a monster of a book, a book that touches on unforgivable things such as mental and physical cruelty, a book that challenges our manners and our mores and really puts us all in a very bad state. Don't read it. Then, at the time, it was written by someone called Ellis Bell, which was quickly revealed to be an anonymous name and the woman, it was a woman who'd written this monster fiend of a like hell book, they called it, Uh, Emily Bronte, a woman who had hardly ever left the Yorkshire Moors. Wuthering Heights is actually not the love story that everybody thinks between Heathcliff and Catherine Earnshaw. It is a book about revenge, retribution, the destruction of three families. You could almost call it the murder of three families, although he never raised his hand to any of them or killed them. But Heathcliff, who was the childhood sweetheart 
and an orphan who had been adopted into the family by Catherine's father, he and Catherine were childhood sweethearts, and in actuality, they were separated by something he overheard her say, and yet he didn't wait to, for her to say, I am Heathcliff. Whatever are whatever souls are made of, his and mine are made of the same thing. And I could cannot live without Heathcliff. But he never heard that and he went away. And he came back a rich and powerful man. By this time she had married Edgar Linton. Uh, and they, this was all on the Yorkshire Moors. And she had a child. And of course they saw each other and they felt the same. And unfortunately she died after childbirth. And then he went on a rampage. The The writing is brilliant. It's an almost perfect book. It has two narrators. It begins with Mr. Lockwood, who is a tenant at Thrush Cross Grange, a house that Heathcliff now owns, and he gets trapped in a storm and is put in the bedroom. They, they take him in in the storm, and he's put in the the bedroom of Catherine Earnshaw and read stuff that belongs to her and books and all of that and then has a nightmare and he thinks she's outside the window and Heathcliff goes crazy because he opens that window and says Catherine Catherine my heart's darling come in and of course that is the first narrator, Mr. Lockwood. He goes home and he sees the housekeeper he has, Nellie Dean, who tells him the real story. Flashback. Go on. Flash <laughs> she she did I know a, you want to finish this. She talk. she did a flashback and that was in 1846 that it was published. And when you read it, you'll never forget that book as long as you live. Fantastic. Yeah, what a great pitch. And very true. All, you know, I saw you nodding along there, Sophie. All very, yeah, all. Um, I mean, I have to say, Wuthering Heights is one of my all-time mm. favourite books. So, uh, you know, you can't, there's no better <laughs> novel than Wuthering Heights, actually. It's wonderful, it is, isn't it? it I, and she's I mean, a woman, you know, she talks about all this horrible stuff mm. that he does to people. And a lot of it, not physical, of course, it's mental cruelty. Yeah, mental. yeah, yeah. Mm. No, it's an incredible book, and uh, I get very cross when people say they don't like it. Like normally, I let people have their own opinions, yeah, but not on that <laughs> which is nice of me. But how can like how, how can you not love Wuthering Heights? It is just like you can't even believe that an actual person could have written something yeah. that amazing. Uh, um, well, that was a that was a strong start and a very strong book, I'd say. Uh, but it's over to you now, Sophie, for your three minutes. So you're going to tell us about Half Broken Things by Morag Yoss. Yeah, so Half Broken Things is a novel as much as it's a thriller. It is a thriller, it's a psychological thriller, but if you read it as a literary novel, it would work just as well. It's just a beautifully written, gripping, fascinating story. And it starts when a woman whose job it is to look after other people's houses when they're away. She's a sort of professional house sitter. And she seems very articulate, educated. Her voice is very likeable. And, and you're, so you're sort of with her. She seems very normal. She goes to house sit in this particular house. And at a certain point, she just sort of... And, and it's brilliantly done. I can't paraphrase it adequately. She just kind of decides that it's her house. <laughs> she's not leaving um, <laughs> and I really identify 
with this book and I did when I first read it because I often have that feeling when I go to amazingly nice hotels if I go to a sort of five star hotel and everything's all beautiful and luxurious I often find myself thinking what would happen if I just refused to leave if you know when it comes time for me to check out I just say I'm not going anywhere this is now my suite <laughs> um, so, so she sort of has this growing awareness that basically she's not willing to this is now her house Meanwhile, there are these two other characters, a young man and a young woman, who are brought together outside the house by circumstances, and they are both separately and independently in in difficult situations. And they end up meeting and then coming to this house that Jean is house-sitting in. And then the three of them sort of take up residence there together and become a sort of reconstructed, very weird, dysfunctional family... And so it's a really gripping book about their relationship. So you see how they form this tight-knit family, even though they were three strangers not very long ago. And it's absolutely convincing. You don't for one minute think, come on now, would this really happen? You believe in it 100%. And then pretty soon they are all in this mindset that Jean was in originally of, this is now our house. We are a family. This is our house. Uh, the young woman has a baby and then it becomes a case of how can we actually stay in this house because we have to because this world that we've created won't survive if anyone else comes back and points out that it's their house <laughs> and I mean it's not comic at all it's really disturbing and, and the wonderful thing about it is that you you know there's there's no part of even the most rational reader that's thinking come on guys it's not your house get the hell out you know you don't live there just face facts you're totally in sympathy with them and when they go to greater and greater and more criminal and more violent lengths to protect this house of theirs you kind of are on their side it's a brilliant book and it's nowhere near as popular and best-selling as it ought to be. Right. Well, when was it uh, published then? I don't know exactly, but I, I think it was around about 2004, 2005. Okay, so yeah. not new, new, but, but a contemporary yeah. Oh, yeah, still absolutely yeah. contemporary. And what was the title again? Half Broken Things. Right. Gosh, another great pitch as well there, Sophie. A book I don't know, I must admit. I, I yes. don't know that well, one. Well, yeah, and I, I, the last two people I recommended it to mm. hadn't heard of it until I recommended it. They both read it immediately and absolutely loved right. it. Right. Gosh, that's, yeah. that's, that's a good sign often because, you know, when you... I, I, I do a lot of recommending of books and I try to maybe tailor them a little bit to to the people asking if I think I know them well enough. Mm, um, mm. But when you can recommend one to a few different people and they all come back and say, oh, yeah, you know, that's a that's yeah. a good sign. I, I honestly it? think it's one of the best crime novels that has been written in the last 20 wow. years, for sure. So there is a crime committed. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, there is a crime <laughs> oh. committed. Yes, but it's not a, a traditional murder mystery. It's not like, here's the murder, now we have to solve mm. it. The crime comes relatively late on in the proceedings. Okay. Well, I have to I have to pick a book on behalf of our listeners because that's the game. Um, I, I might be making a, a, a huge assumption here, but I I assume that a lot of people have read Wuthering Heights. Yes, because, and I think she's the one. And I think they should have read it, don't you, Barbara? Yes, and I if do. they haven't, I, I think do. they should go out and buy it today, to be uh, honest. Yes, Definitely. and they can. It's still in print. Certainly but I is. I'm going to say 
that I don't mind if Sophie's the winner. Well, I was going to say, I don't mind if you're the winner. I don't want Emily Bronte knocking on my window in the middle of the night. Maybe we could have a draw. Oh, is that allowed? A draw? Now, I've given a draw before. I have given a draw well, there before. there you go. There's and you know what? There is precedent. And I tell you what, because, because you both loved the sound, or indeed you already love Wuthering Heights, you love the sound of the book that Sophie let was you, pitching. I think we'll, we'll, we'll call, this will be the second, the second book off draw. draw ever. Excellent. But I think that's fair, don't you? I'd, absolutely fair. Second so that means draw ever, but go out and buy unbroken, half broken things, half, half, half broken, broken things. things. And if you haven't read, and if you Wuthering haven't read Heights, Wuthering Heights, buy that as well, <laughs> yes. for goodness' sake. And Wuthering Heights is also the only great classic book that also has about it a great classic song. Yes. Oh, it does. Kate, Kate Bush. Bush wrote a pop song oh, called I never Wuthering knew that. Heights, That's and I can't really great. I can't think of any other classic book, classic song combination. No, right. there've been a number thing. of movies. Uh, with, there yeah. was Merlot Baron years ago with yeah. Olivier's. None yeah. of the movies get close to the no, brilliance they don't of the get book. Close really. to the darkness no. of it. No. <laughs> That's why you have to go and buy the book or read it again if you if you haven't uh, read it in a while um, thank you so much both of you for, for joining me today for bringing those books and for coming to talk about your novels and writing and everything it's been an absolute pleasure Master of His Fate by Barbara Taylor Bradford and The Mystery of the Three Quarters by Sophie Hannah are both out now published by HarperCollins Barbara, Sophie thank you lovely to see you thank you Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.